Welcome to FedScoop's podcast series on IT security in government, underwritten this week by Duo Security. I'm your host, Wyatt Cash, and in today's episode, we're taking a look at some of the key public sector IT lessons that emerged from 2020, and we'll explore what lies ahead for federal IT and cybersecurity officials. Our guest today is Brian Rosenstiel, cybersecurity architect for public sector at Cisco's Duo Security. Brian has nearly two decades of enterprise IT and security experience specializing now in zero trust and data-centric approaches to cybersecurity, including dynamic authentication practices. Brian, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the program. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, Brian, I think you'd agree very few people a year ago at this time could have predicted the tidal wave of changes that were thrust on federal agency IT departments in 2020. Let's start with the massive shift of federal civilian and defense employees who suddenly needed to work from home. From your perspective, what were the biggest security lessons that shift brought to light in 2020? We all didn't see this coming, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think the biggest lesson that we all learned very, very quickly and, and unfortunately rather painfully is we had an over-reliance upon our government furnished equipment, our managed devices. Most agencies didn't have enough to shift from, let's say, 95% on-premise, 5% telework to the reverse. And that left a, a massive shortage out there, which then resulted in a lot of security concerns about, well, we weren't designed to allow people to use an unmanaged device from an offsite network that we have no control over. So we don't actually know how we can trust these individuals to gain access to the resources they need in order to be able to, to perform the work and duties that are required. The, the second half of that, from the administration standpoint, is it was never thought that we would allow privileged access externally. I mean, we had set some of it up, sure, for certain things, but there were other things that was always assumed, well, those administrators will be here. And suddenly we needed to make it so that they didn't have to be. In some ways, we were successful for certain types of administrative duties. Early on, we were able to make that shift. And as time progressed, that was able to, to happen more and more. But even today, there are a contingent of federal workers who every day they throw on their masks, they go in to work, and they keep the lights running. And that's something that I think we're going to have to look back on it and figure out how we can get around that kind of reliance. And there will be certain things that, that will always require that in-person administration, but I think we can do a better job there. And I think these two points really were illustrated from a reliance on connectivity to, to resources where we assumed, hey, you were going to be on a network. So that meant we had to have VPNs. Well, when the supply chain got limited, right, because we didn't have the manufacturing plants to build those VPN devices that were needed in order to establish those, those secure connections, uh, and people didn't have the bandwidth and they didn't have the devices in place to handle those numbers of workers, that was a real shortage. And we realized, okay, reliance upon VPN the way that we have in the past was not going to be scalable. How do we operate in this world when we can't just go and get those devices and, and plug those in? And then the other part about this was that authentication. We suddenly started seeing reliance upon traditional means of authentication were not going to work in this new, almost complete telework environment. And that fundamentally changed the way that we approached how we're even going to gain access to, to systems and data. So yeah, a lot of lessons that were learned very quickly, and some of which that we're still dealing with today and still learning as we, we progress forward. 
Well, some good news at one level. Agencies, of course, were already taking steps to migrate parts of their IT operations to the cloud, and those steps certainly made it easier to adjust to the impact of the pandemic. But what would you say were one or two other key lessons that agencies will take away from 2020 and need to continue building on as we head into 2021? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we had steps in place. We were making progress and march forward towards this modernized IT environment where we have uh, more reliance on on cloud technologies. Uh, What we started to realize, though, and and we were realizing this before these events occurred, but what ended up happening is we had a, a giant spotlight placed upon various elements. And one of the ones that I just touched on was authentication. And really, the spotlight that was placed in that aspect was on identity itself. You know, we kind of learned the hard way of what identity actually meant. So for a lot of us, it was just when we thought of identity, we thought of, hey, who's the person behind the keyboard, right? The same thing as a social security number, a driver's license, right? We thought that that was identity. And we started realizing this concept of digital identity and how that's so much more than just that individual. Where we started realizing, okay, digital identity is actually a combination of elements. Sure, it's that person behind the keyboard, but it's also what account they're using. Is it a privileged account? Is it non-privileged? Um, what devices are they trying to gain access to the resources from? If it's not a managed device, let's make sure that we can actually do a security posture, a health assessment on that device before we're going to allow it to gain access to a resource, right? Those types of elements all combine combining together, including the authenticator itself, that made up our digital identity. And so we started very quickly broadening our view to more holistic standpoints. And the other lesson learned, and I always try to, to be a little bit positive as I can, but I think this one is duly earned. We learned we can function in a almost complete telework environment, and not just for a couple of days, but for months upon months, and do so in a way where the work is still able to be accomplished. And I think that's a a real testament to the flexibility that we had placed before these events occurred, and then our ingenuity and flexibility that we very quickly relied upon once it happened. So, you know, I think that's good. And I think telework is here to stay. And we'll only continue to kind of strengthen our security posture around it and allow our workforce to be that much more flexible and dynamic. Well, let me drill down a little bit more into security. You've spoken regularly in recent months about the importance of authentication and authenticator strategies. Talk about why it's important to understand the distinction between those two concepts and what should agencies keep in mind as they continue applying those concepts towards zero trust? Yeah, I think my favorite tagline is the strength of your authenticator is not equivalent to the strength of your authentication. And that's a lesson that we learned kind of the hard way. So, you know, I look at the last 10 years, authentication was all about building the strongest authenticators possible. And I look forward in the next 10 years going to be about smarter, stronger authentication. So people will say, and kind of what you were asking, well, what's the difference between authenticator and authentication? Aren't they the same thing? Well, they're actually not. So an authenticator is going to be proof of possession of something. You either know something, you either have something, or in the case of if you're using a biometric, you are something, right? So if we break down a password, it's proof of possession of a memorized secret, right? If we look at uh, PIV and CAT cards, it's proof of possession of a private key. You access that private key through the use of a PIN on that card. That's that memorized secret too. So it's actually two authenticators in one. But all of these are predicated upon just being static in that authentication scheme. So that was one of the reasons why we really started seeing dynamic authentication taking hold. And it, 
again, this was happening long before we moved into this full telework environment, but it's only been shown as to how important it is that part of my authentication should be various factors like, hey, what browser are you using? What operating system are you using? Are things patched and up to date? Because if they're not, even if I can show proof of possession of a strong authenticator, that does not mean necessarily that I should allow that authentication to proceed. And this is what's going to allow us to continue to function in an environment where we may not have full control over the network and over the devices. And let's face it, as we move forward, you know, regardless of being in the situation that we're obviously in with the pandemic, we are marching towards a future in IT where we can no longer assume to have those types of controls over those endpoints, over the network. So we have to be expanding our view of identity and we have to be building in these checks into the authentication workflow. Well, next, let me ask, federal agencies still rely heavily on physical CAC cards and multiple passwords to grant employees access to electronic systems. How far are we away from the day when federal agencies can literally think about killing the password and embrace more modern forms of authentication? Oh, man. Well, I love it when we have the ability to actually put that final nail in the coffin and kill the password and get rid of some of those security vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, we're getting closer. One of the ways that I really see that, that we have progressed as a society is just the ready availability of strong authenticators. And we can use that as a part of our modern authentication workflows. And so what I mean is I look at FIDO, I look at some of the developments there, but I also look at the widespread availability of FIDO authenticators. And, and a lot of these can be found on a smartphone. So we don't have to look too far back to when we started to run into challenges maybe five years ago. I talked to agencies about alternative forms of authentication to the physical smart card. You know, they would say, yeah, we'd love to use the mobile device, but not everyone has one. Well, while we had pretty good adoption five years ago, it's that much stronger now. You think about in your daily life, how often are you more than an arm's reach away from your smartphone, right? And, and almost every age group has high adoption of it. Well, that's a very strong cryptographic authenticator that we can leverage. And that's a fundamental difference. When you think back to the early days of centralized authentication, uh, HSPD-12 in the federal government, no one had access to these types of strong authenticators. We had to issue those and then people had to make sure they were always carrying them. Now everyone has it. It is an addictive behavior. So let's leverage that authenticator. Uh, now, in order to be able to do that, we have to have policy that matches. We have to make sure that we have guidance from NIST allowing for ready adoption. We're starting to see those changes. And we need to make sure that we have OMB memorandums that allow us to leverage FIDO authenticators, alternative authenticators to the smart card to be able to, to take full advantage of those. And I think until we do that, we're still going to see the password around. Biggest area for this is shared admin accounts. They don't mix well with PKI. Uh, local administrative accounts don't really work well in a smart card environment. So we know that we have these pretty big gaps. We can fill those today with other authenticators and put that within our stronger authentication workflow. We just have to make sure that we have the right policy and guidance to allow us to do it. Finally, Brian, given Duo Securities and Cisco's work all across the public sector, what are the biggest issues federal IT and security leaders should have at the center of their radar heading into 2021? Yeah, I, and obviously I'm a, I'm a little focused on the authentication side, but I think rightfully so, right? That's the tip of the spear of anyone's cybersecurity strategy. First thing we have to do is we have to stabilize our authentication. What I mean by that is right now we kind of have a patchwork across the federal government of different authenticators. 
even within the same agency. So there's one particular agency that I'm familiar with that has no less than four different authenticator issuance systems for their unclassified system alone. They've got, you know, their PIV issuance system. They have another issuance system that they're using for employees that aren't PIV eligible. They've got some foreign nationals from kind of a global mission. And they have a mobile device issuance system for those who have a PIV and one for those who don't, right? So that is a lot of administrative overhead just from an authentication standpoint. And now you have to have all of your different applications being able to support those. And that is a challenge in and upon itself. So what we need to do is collapse those down into kind of centralized authentication policy engines that are going to allow us to have a diverse set of authenticators depending upon different needs and, and, and different allowances for issuance of authenticators. The other thing we need to do is proper risk assessments for applications and doing that from a data-centric approach. So we learned during 2020 that applications don't need to be protected at the same level. We kind of knew that before, but we took for granted that everyone was on site on the same network. Well, the reality is, is that there is a difference in sensitivity of data. And we are seeing lots of initiatives. We're seeing it with CMMC. We're seeing a little bit with CDM. We're, We're all across the board about saying, uh, even within TIC 3.0, the way that it's talking about decentralizing and, and building in trust zones, we can have data protected at different levels based upon the sensitivity of that data. And I think that's going to be important moving forward. And that's going to allow us to continue this march towards zero trust. We could have a, an entire session just talking about the different steps towards it. But the reality is, everything we've been talking about today, these are the building blocks of moving towards that zero trust world that's going to be so critical as we move into the future. Well, you're right. We could spend a whole other episode just on some of these building blocks of zero trust, but I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there for today. Brian Rosenstiel, thanks so much for joining us to talk about some of the key security issues federal officials need to take away from 2020 and giving us a glimpse of some of the most important things that now lie ahead. Hey, well, thank you. It's always a pleasure. And thanks to Duo Security for underwriting today's episode. Look for more of our coverage of IT security in government on fedscoop.com and our FedScoop radio channels on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. This is Wyatt Cash. Thanks for tuning in. 